0: Hello and welcome to News Ads. Coming to you live from the BBC World Service studios in London, I'm Tim Franks. In a moment, successful and appropriate, or pathetic and dangerous. Opinions, I think we can safely say, diverge over the intelligence President Trump shared with the Russian foreign minister last week. We'll bring you the latest from Washington. Also, the man who recently lost a friend in the campaign to find kidnapping victims in Mexico, he vows that his efforts will not cease and a wolf that appealed to Wall Street. A guitar once played by Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead is up for sale.
1: 21 rooms but one will do You think of this thing as just sort of being wood and some strips of metal and some wire strings, but it really is something that people think of and it, and they, it takes them back to important moments in their lives.
0: is a sale in itself something of a political gesture? An answer in 20 minutes. We'll begin with the almighty kerfuffle in Washington DC over what President Trump said last week to the Russian Foreign Minister, apparently involving sensitive material provided by an ally and relating to terrorism. These days, it might seem that standard rhetorical procedure in Washington, D.C. is either groans of disbelief or bellows of rage. So it was striking to hear one of the most powerful men in the Capitol, the Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, try a new approach today, glowing understatement.
2: I think we could do with a little less drama from the White House uh, on a lot of things so that we can focus on our agenda, which is the deregulations, tax reform, uh, repealing and replacing Obamacare.
0: That may be Mr McConnell's stated desire. The leader of the Democratic Party in the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, was not about to grant his wish.
3: Without being political or anything, because we try not to be in terms of intelligence, what the president did was totally outrageous. Totally outrageous. If it was unwitting, that would be pathetic and dangerous. If it was intentional... That would even be... I don't know what's
0: worse. Nancy Pelosi sounding as if she was on the point of combustion. At about midday Washington time, a man with a large fire extinguisher appeared behind a lectern in the White House. A metaphorical fire extinguisher, anyway. The man was the White House National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. His audience, a room full of White House correspondents.
4: It's wholly appropriate for the president to share whatever information he thinks is necessary to advance the security of the American people. He made the decision in the context of, of, the, of the conversation, which was wholly appropriate. So let's just, I think, what one, I think it's worth recapping one thing here. The President was meeting uh, with, uh, with the foreign minister about, about the terrorist threat. He had also raised some difficult issues, what, he, what we expected in terms of different behavior from Russia in, in key areas like, uh, like, uh, like Ukraine and, and as in Syria. But then the President was emphasizing, hey, we have some common interests here. We have to work together in some critical areas. And we have an area, we have a, an area of cooperation with transnational terrorist organizations, ISIS in particular, an organization that had already taken down a Russian airliner and murdered over 200 people in October of 2015. And so, so, so this was the the the, the context of the conversation in which it was wholly appropriate to share what the threat was as a basis for common action and coordination.
0: It was an argument President Trump himself picked up when he took one question on the subject at the end of a joint news conference in the White House with the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan.
4: Well, we had a very, very successful meeting with the foreign minister of Russia. Uh, Our fight is against ISIS. Uh, As General McMaster said, uh, I thought he said, and I know he feels, that we had actually a great meeting with the foreign minister, so... uh, we're going to have a lot of great success over the next coming years, and we want to get as many to help fight terrorism as possible.
0: Well, uh, a few of the voices uh, who have been involved in uh, today's ructions in Washington, D.C., and watching it all for us the BBC's Anthony Zerka. Um, uh, Anthony, are, are we any clearer as to what it was exactly that the president shared with the Russian foreign minister and from where this intelligence came?
5: Uh, Well, there was a report in the New York Times earlier today that said this information came from Israel. That was the U.S. ally that was alluded to in the Washington Post report from last night. Uh, The details of it were on some sort of a a threat from the so-called Islamic State to place a bomb in a laptop computer or use their their technology to put a bomb in a laptop computer – could be brought onto an airplane, which is why there have been these warnings going out and talk of a possible laptop ban for all transatlantic flights. So those were the details that came out. Although if you listen to what McMaster said time and time again, uh, he talked about it being wholly appropriate that this discussion came up. I mean, that's the line that the White House is pursuing here, that Donald Trump uh, did this as part of a strategy to bring Russia uh, into further cooperation with the U.S. to combat I.S., uh, now, didn't talk at all uh, about whether this was a plan ahead of time that the administration had going into this meeting. In fact, it came up in the context of the conversation, they said. Also, didn't really explain why there was such a mad dash scramble, according to The Washington Post reports, afterwards among the intelligence community, possibly to clean up this revelation. I mean, those are two big things that struck me as missing from this this press conference.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think Mr. McMaster used the term wholly appropriate five times, I counted, <laughs> that in, a, pre- right. in a pretty short period. But there are also, as you'll be better aware than me, Anthony, all sorts of reports saying that the White House is in meltdown with sort of accusations as to who was to blame.
5: Uh, right. Our uh, our White House reporter, Tara McKelvey, said that uh, she could hear shouts from an adjoining room that where uh, Trump officials were meeting before getting in front of the press, so, so much so that they had to turn up the volume on a television in order to drown out the noise the so reporters couldn't hear. Uh, there's a New York Times report about Donald Trump brooding and angry about uh, the message spinning out of control and turning on his own staff, including the press office and his son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner. So. The, the White House is, as you mentioned, putting out fires left and right. I mean, after last week in the Comey firing, having this story hit right on its heels hasn't given them a chance to regroup. And now we're staring at a, a major foreign trip to some key allies coming up next week uh, okay. where they haven't really had a chance to lay much of a groundwork with the press.
0: Anthony Zerka, thank you as ever. Well, President Trump's National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, wouldn't be drawn on whether the President had revealed what had been uh, uh, classified information to the Russian Foreign Minister. But uh, what are the rules when it comes to the President and his divulging of intelligence? Tim Naftali is president, uh, Presidential Historian at the Graduate School of Public Service at New York University.
6: The President of the United States has the right to share U.S. secrets with whomever he wishes. It's a remarkable power inherent in the American presidency. The question is whether it is wise to share American secrets. And then there's the question of sharing other people's secrets, which is rarely wise, unless you have a high politics reason or you've uh, conferred with your liaison partner and that partner said, "Okay, go ahead and share that with the third country. What's concerning about this whole issue is that Donald Trump came into office showing no respect whatsoever for the U.S. intelligence community. He, indeed, without even being briefed on what the U.S. intelligence community thought it knew about the Russia hacking scandal, dismissed it as fake news, as an attempt by Democrats to relitigate the 2016 election. So he sent a message to intelligence professionals right from the beginning that he didn't much care for what they did and that he saw them as partisan. Now that he's in office, he is not showing much concern about the security of intelligence materials. And this will cast a pall not simply on the national security system, but will weaken alliance relationships. Countries interact with each other not because they like each other's heads of state, but because of national interest. But that doesn't mean that countries will always take the risks to share information if they're concerned that that information might be compromised. And so the implications of what happened yesterday could actually be significant. At the very least, it makes the United States look unserious as a superpower. And it makes the White House look incapable of properly briefing the President.
0: In terms, the National Security Advisor said at this briefing before reporters, the President wasn't even aware where the information came from. He wasn't briefed on the source and method. That suggests that if there were an error, it wasn't necessarily that of the President directly.
6: No, it could very well be an error of his briefers. But what I'm driving at here is that it surprises me that the president's briefing, whatever he read, that that didn't include the fact that this came from a liaison service. Presidents rarely ask for the exact source of an intelligence. They don't need to know it. What you need to know is the value of the information, and you need to know if it comes from a foreign country because you would apply special, even more important restrictions on its use. Countries are very sensitive about how their allies use their intelligence, and I found it surprising that at the very least, president's briefers didn't make clear that this was not U.S. intelligence. This was the product of liaison with a foreign intelligence service because that would place a certain restriction on its use and its sharing.
0: The other side of the story, I guess, is the fact that it wound up in the Washington Post to kick off with and that the source of that must have been people in the know in the intelligence community. And this isn't the first time that this White House has suffered potential embarrassment, if not something greater, at the hands of the intelligence agencies. How potentially significant is that rupture in that relationship?
6: Well, very significant. And it's a product of the president-elect's treatment of the intelligence community. And it's, it's a product, I'm sure, of frustration with the president, now that he's president, in the intelligence community itself. I think that this may be a way of sending a signal to McMaster by the intelligence community that the president should be briefed better and that the president should take these secrets more seriously. This may also be related to the Russia probe in the sense that not only was he sharing third-party information, but he was sharing it with the Russians. And the Russians do not share the same interests in Syria as does the United States. And, you know, it's a bad idea to risk somebody else's source. But it's an even worse idea to do that in a conversation with the Russians.
0: Just one last question. You're a presidential historian. Are we living in unprecedented times?
6: (laughs) President Trump promised to be a disruptor. And disruptors by nature, I think, can be expected to attack, undermine and challenge norms. And that makes him in a sense unprecedented. His temperament is reminiscent of the temperament of Richard Nixon. But Richard Nixon had had years as a foreign policy professional, and even though he had a very dark side and did ultimately undertake the of government power, he did understand the importance of keeping secrets. (laughs) Uh, Some that... uh, the American people actually really needed to know. But, uh, and so there's a difference between Trump and Nixon in President Trump's handling of national security information. So in that regard, I would say this is unprecedented. His disregard for the importance of national security information puts him in a class by himself.
0: Tim Naftali uh, from the Graduate School of Public Service at New York University. You're listening to the BBC. coming up on news hour, what's it like to run for election in iran as a woman
3: a few years ago when i tried to stand for election my husband told me to withdraw he would call all our relatives saying i shouldn't have applied for the candidacy saying this brings shame on our family what would people say
0: reflections from iranian women uh, running for uh, office. And that's coming up in about 20 minutes. One headline to remind you of, and it is that Donald Trump's national security advisor has said that any information the president disclosed during last week's meeting with the Russian foreign minister was wholly appropriate. But both Republicans and Democrats have voiced concerns that classified material was shared with Moscow. US media reporting that the intelligence in question came from Israel. <laughs> This is news live from the BBC in London with me Tim Franks. Just as we were coming off air yesterday reports were emerging that one of Britain's most notorious serial killers had died in a high security hospital. In the 1960s Ian Brady and his partner Myra Hindley killed five children between the ages of 10 and 17 around the northern English city of Manchester. Brady and Hindley became known as the Moors murderers and were convicted and jailed for life. There's a strong belief that there could have been more victims. Tommy Rattigan, who was seven years old at the time, had a very close call. He told the BBC's Nicky Campbell what happened.
7: I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, I was in a park in Manchester waiting for my two brothers uh, when Hindley and uh, Brady happened along and she enticed me to come back to the house for a jam bussy. When we did get back there, uh, she she well he disappeared into the kitchen and he never he never came out again. He stayed in the kitchen all the time. Just
8: remind us how old you were, Tommy.
7: I I I was seven, coming up to eight years of age.
8: Right. Uh, what did she say to you?
7: Well, one of the things that she wanted to know was where where I came from, uh, and when I told her, as a seven year old kid, you know, uh, twenty four Stamford Street, Hugh Manchester, fifty, and I just. Rambled my my address off, uh, and she seemed sort of quite surprised by that because she turned around to Brady and uh, called him the lads from Hume, uh, and he told her to hurry up, uh, and that's when she asked me, you know, a uh, few questions, and then she says, "You look hungry. Are you hungry?" And I said "Yeah, you know." And I felt more sorry that my two brothers weren't with me at the time, so they could have shared in this, but. You know, they weren't. And so I was going to have this all to myself.
8: Mm, so what happened? Uh,
7: well, we, we got back to the house. It was the house in Bannock Street, uh, the grandmother's house, the terrorist house there. Uh, she opened the door. I followed her in. Brady put his hand on my shoulder, basically to steer me in. I wasn't sort of, you know, I didn't feel anything was wrong at the time. I wondered why they weren't sitting talking to me and they, I just felt isolated in there. And then I started to s- sort of feel uncomfortable.
8: What saved you?
7: Uh, well, I th- perhaps intuition. I, I just don't know. I, I, just, I just knew there was something not quite right about this. Uh, How did you get out uh, of the house? Well, I, I was sitting at a table. Uh, the chair that I was sitting at was right next to the, uh, the window that goes out into the backyard, sash window. So I got out the window. She actually grabbed hold of my foot as I got out. She, she shouted, the S-H-I-T's getting away. Uh, but my momentum had already taken me anywhere. I was gone, and she couldn't, she couldn't hold me. You know? It was just a, a quick grab, but she couldn't get hold of me. And I was gone
0: an astonishing spine-chilling story Tommy Rattigan uh, speaking to Nikki Campbell about his escape uh, getting off 50 years ago from the Moors murderers Ian Brady and Myra Hindley The band The Grateful Dead had 30 towering years in rock and roll history, up to the death in 1995 of their most famous member, the guitarist Jerry Garcia. Now what's perhaps the ultimate Garcia artefact is to be auctioned for charity in New York. It's Garcia's favourite guitar, nicknamed Wolf. Our arts correspondent Vincent Dowd reports. (laughs)
9: Grateful Dead emerged in 1965 in California. To their fans, they still evoke that time, that place. The so-called Deadheads mainly saw composer guitarist Jerry Garcia as frontman. When he died in 1995, the glory years were over. Just keep
1: chugging, oh
9: the band was prolific and varied. There's psychedelic rock and funk and country. They enjoyed touring, as Jerry Garcia told the BBC in 1981. It's very
1: exciting for us. It's fun. And it's it's part of one of the last remaining adventures. You can't ride the rails anymore in America, you know. It's tough to hitchhike even, but you can have an experience out on the road with the Grateful Dead. You can follow the band around for a tour. You can have those kind of adventures.
9: Fifteen years ago, two Garcia guitars were auctioned off by the man who built them, Doug Irwin. He'd been left them in Garcia's will. Now Wolf has been consigned back to the same New York auction house by the man who bought it then, businessman Dan Pritzker. He's told Guernsey's auctioneers a single charity is to get every cent from the sale. Arlen Ettinger runs Guernsey's. Mr.
1: Pritzker, Dan, said that he was deeply troubled over the direction our new government is taking and that he wanted to take some some proactive step to do something important and good with this wonderful guitar, Wolf, that he's now owned for 15 years, that he paid a million dollars for, and said, look, I'd like you to take this guitar and have an auction of it, and I'd like all the proceeds to go to an organization here in the United States referred to as the Southern Poverty Law Center. Southern Poverty for roughly 50 years has been through the courts fighting racism, hate groups, neo-Nazis and all kinds of ultra-right groups and when I heard that it was something that almost brought me to tears. It was
9: such a, a noble thing to do. Looking
1: for a 21
9: but one will do. Garcia played Wolf from around 1973. Even real deadheads have to guess a bit which guitar turns up on which track. 21 rooms, but one will
1: do. You think of this thing as just sort of being wood and some strips of metal and some wire strings, but it really is something that people think of and, and, it, and they, it takes them back to important moments in their lives before the auction we did that had Wolf. 15 years ago, uh, we did a number of uh, preview parties, one of which I recall being a group called White Collar Deadheads, mostly Wall Street types, undid their collar and came out for that party. And I remember you had these well-dressed gentlemen on the other side of a slim piece of glass, the showcase that Wolf was in, and who would literally get down on their hands and knees in front of this little showcase and then beg me to open the door just a smidge so they could put their pinky on that instrument just for a second. You know, sort of sick, but very touching at the same time, very strange, but it's a very meaningful thing.
9: Guernsey's won't quote an official asking price for Wolf, though, if you happen to be in New York later this month and have maybe a million or even a million and a half dollars to spare and really like the Grateful Dead, you'll be very welcome to bid. <laughs>
0: The sound of Wolf, the uh, guitar of Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead, and that was Vincent Dowd reporting. And now in a truly screechingly awful... Uh, broadcasting segue. I'm going to go from uh, a priceless—well, not priceless, but a very expensive artifact that's up for sale—for um, to something else that you can get uh, for free. Because uh, it's the News Hour podcast, which I'm punting to you. It's available twice a day. If you're unable to uh, catch us live, you can catch up with News Hour anytime you want. And BBC News Hour podcast is what you have to hunt for. Thanks for listening to this podcast edition of NewsHour. It's available twice a day, straight after the live edition of the programme. And uh, we have plenty of other podcasts here on the BBC World Service. Uh, for a roundup of some of the best news, uh, you could try our global news podcast. Next on NewsHour, the people versus the Mexican drugs cartels. First, business news, and it's news of how the European Union's single market may not quite be del- delivering to some of its newer members. Consumers in the former communist bloc of Central and Eastern Europe have long complained that food on sale in their supermarkets is significantly lower in quality than that in the West, even when the packaging is identical. Now Central European countries are lobbying for new EU legislation to force distributors to sell the same quality food everywhere. Our proud correspondent Rob Cameron has been on a grocery shopping trip with the Zedinek family who drive into Germany to shop two or three times a month.
10: So we're looking for sausages, bratwurst, here we go, párky, tak je tam 87% masa. Right, so Petr's holding up a pack of bockwurst sausages, German sausages. Uh, he's just showed me that they contain 87% meat. He says, try and buy sausages in the Czech Republic that contain 87% meat. It's just not possible. Další příklad, tak
1: tady je třeba Stojí jedno euro.
10: So Peter's holding up uh, a couple of cans of tuna fish. Here in the German supermarket, they cost 1 euro each. In the Czech Republic, it's more like 1 euro 50. And again, he says the tuna is simply better quality here in Germany than it is in the Czech Republic. And the thing is, I can hear around me, all I can hear is Czech. I haven't heard anybody speaking German yet. We fill two shopping trolleys with basics, about 150 euros worth, and load them into the car. Petter's wife, Sharka.
3: you You're right. It is crazy, driving to another country to buy better quality food. But that's the way it is. And when you compare the products, identical packaging, but something completely different hidden inside, I think it's a pretty sad state of affairs. Sometimes it seems to me that we are a kind of garbage can for the producers. What is left over, they send to the Czech Republic.
10: Back in Prague, I meet Marianne Jureczka, the Czech agriculture minister, who tells me what researchers from a Czech university found when they did a comparison study.
2: The
11: research has thrown up some absurd examples. For instance, they compared bottles of iced tea. The packaging for the Czech Republic and Germany was absolutely identical, but the Czech iced tea had 40% less natural extract. Or lunch meat. The tin in Germany looks exactly the same as the Czech tin, but the one sold in Germany is made from pork, whereas the Czech one contains mechanically recovered chicken. And the thing about the iced tea was that the Czech tea was more expensive than the German one. The
10: Czech Republic is joining Hungary and Slovakia in pressing the EU for a ban on the multinationals selling inferior quality food under identical packaging. The distributors argue that they cater to different regional palates by using different ingredients. Czech customers, like the Zedinex, say that's a laughable defence. The proof of the pudding, they say, is in the eating.
0: Rob Cameron on the grocery woes in the Czech Republic. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC. One of Mexico's leading journalists has been shot dead. Javier Valdez had won awards for his coverage of the drugs trade. His attackers have so far not been identified. His was no isolated murder, but one of thousands, by some estimates tens of thousands of Mexicans, who die each year in the armed conflict involving drugs, gangs and the security forces. Some of the victims, like Javier Valdez, are high profile. For example, last week, Miriam Rodriguez, she was also shot dead in her home. She was a mother who had become an activist after her daughter was kidnapped and murdered by the local drug cartel, the Zetas. The information she garnered by herself led to the arrest and conviction of gang members involved in her daughter's death. So what can be done? Guillermo Gutiérrez Riestra is another activist who knew Miriam well.
11: Miriam
12: is uh, madre de una hija que Miriam was the mother of a girl who disappeared in 2012, and from that moment on, she dedicated herself to finding her. She eventually found the bodily remains of her daughter, and from then on, she started pursuing the perpetrators and managed to put them behind bars. After that, she got involved in the collective of family members of the disappeared in San Fernando. She demanded justice and the truth from the authorities, and she was very energetic. She felt her life was being threatened, and some days before her death she informed the authorities, from the governor to the Minister for Public Security and even the United Nations High Commissioner. But she never received the protection that could have prevented her death. What did you feel when you heard the news that she'd been shot dead in her home? They sent me a message a minute after she was attacked and I felt fury and anger because I knew she had asked the authorities for protection. A lot of anger and fury. There's no other word to describe it. Anger because it was a death that had been announced and it could have been prevented. And that's why we insist that it's not just the criminal organizations that are guilty. It's also the officials that could have prevented her death. And I guess, Guillermo, the
0: terrible parallel with you and your story is that you're also trying
12: to find out what happened to your daughter Yes, on the first day of September, it will be six years since my daughter disappeared. So some time ago, we also founded a collective of people looking for their missing family members. And we've been demanding that the government look for them. And what happened to the police investigation? The police never investigated anything because they're too afraid to investigate. And the investigations we make, we don't always tell the police about them because we're scared that the criminals might find out. What we found out is that organized crime groups are holding a lot of young people captive because they are free manpower for them, slaves for their illegal operations. The problem is not just the drugs trade, but also that they operate legal and illegal companies.
11: We got the news
0: yesterday that the army is is going to be deployed in your state in an effort to bring perhaps some measure of control to try and beat back the drugs gangs. Is that sufficient, or would you like to see... A different approach to the violence and to
12: the crime. We have seen a lot of police and the army, but the criminals keep acting exactly like before, so it doesn't scare them at all. And when they arrest the leader of a drugs gang, that only provokes them to diversify. That means they reduce their involvement in drugs, but they get involved in kidnapping and extortion, which has a bigger impact on the population. I think what should be done is to stop this war against drugs that has already been going on for 10 years and to legalize some drugs in order to reduce the violence caused by the drugs trade. The problem that has become evident is corruption. While there's drugs money in the police, the army and politics, this won't stop. There are suitcases of money, and they mean that we won't see a solution to violence in Mexico anytime soon. A final question, Guillermo. Given what happened to
0: Miriam last week, given what happened to Javier Valdez, the journalist, just yesterday, are you concerned at all about your own safety?
12: Yes, of course. All the members of the collectives are afraid, especially because of the journalist's assassination. I think the federal government has a policy to try and scare everybody who is speaking the truth. We're fearing for our lives. And the worst is that five days after Miriam was killed, and despite national and international calls to put security measures for us in place, there hasn't been any security measure.
0: Guillermo Gutiérrez-Riestro, a Mexican activist, still looking for his missing daughter. In this year of important elections around the world, the next big one is on Friday in Iran. One thing is guaranteed, the next president will not be a woman. There are no female candidates. 137 women registered, but none was approved by the Guardian Council, the powerful conservative body that vets would be candidates. But alongside the presidential poll, voters will be electing new local councils, and here women are involved. Indeed, four years ago, a record number of women won seats in local elections, and many are hoping to repeat that achievement. The BBC's been hearing the experiences of uh, some of those Iranian women who've run for office.
3: When I went to apply for the candidacy, they were laughing at me. They told me, how can a woman join the council? I told them, I'm trying anyway. I will put my trust in God. A few years ago, when I tried to stand for election, my husband told me to withdraw. He would call all our relatives saying I shouldn't have applied for the candidacy, saying, this brings shame on our family. What would people say? They told me, there's no reason for you to speak. Let us give the speech instead. You don't need to come and speak in the Grand Mosque, but I did it anyway. When my posters came from the printer, my husband glanced at my pictures and asked, you really want to put these up on the walls? I said, yes, of course. We were having breakfast when he said, so you withdrew, right? My daughter said, laughing, the deadline has passed. My mum didn't withdraw. The town's fanatics told me I have to wear black clothing, but I'm a very lively and happy girl. I always wear colourful clothes, and people actually like that. They say it shows you're alive. In our council, there were six men and one woman, me. I had a PhD and a strong track record, but they didn't. But they could never bring themselves to vote me as the head of council, But I got the deputy head role anyway. For 20 days, I sat down and read through all the construction laws and regulations. The judge said, in all my years here, I have never seen someone so well read. Unfortunately, in our town, the marriage age is low. We started bringing in doctors to schools to educate girls. My husband finally came to my campaign office. When he saw all the crowds and commotion, he told everyone, I just got to know my wife. I didn't care if I won or not. I just wanted to show them that a woman can.
0: The stories of some of the women who have run for office in Iran. Amid rising tensions in one of the world's most volatile regions, an audacious project to use science for diplomacy is taking shape in the heart of the Middle East. It's a highly sophisticated particle accelerator called Sesame and it's being built in Jordan. The BBC science editor, David Shookman, has been to the site.
8: Excited chatter in a marquee crowded with scientists. It's hard to believe, but some are from countries hostile to each other notably Iran and Israel. Somehow, they've stuck together with half a dozen other countries to build a new research centre which they'll all share. It's called Sesame. Zera Sayers from Turkey has pushed for this for years.
6: Well, I said at the beginning that it's never going to work, and then I got converted and then I started working for it with other people and I saw how dedicated people were, how determined they were to, work, to make it work. It's an uneasy happiness because I know how fragile it is, but I still would like to enjoy the moment.
8: Standing near her is an Israeli physicist, Eliza Rabinovici. He's been passionate about the plan since the early 90s because of its potential value in breaking down barriers.
7: We live in a very dark time in this region. If we look at the media, read the newspapers, they describe beheadings, rivers of blood, people being killed without anybody caring, which is a very dark period. At least here, a small group of dedicated people from all over the region succeeds to show that when you try enough and when you believe enough, you can find... Another way.
8: This comes at an exceptionally tense time. Hundreds of Palestinian prisoners are on hunger strike in Israeli jails. Some Palestinian scientists apparently didn't want to turn up for the event. But one who did is a physicist, Salman Salman. I ask him whether he's under pressure not to take part in a project that includes Israel.
7: Oh, I don't buy this. I've been involved with this project so many years. Iran is a member also, so maybe many people say Iran should not be also. Cyprus is there, and uh, many Turks maybe say Turkey should not be there, so we have all those collections. I don't, I don't see it's real a serious problem if you really commit yourself to the good scientific quality, and this is something we were very strong on it. So if you keep the good science, everybody will be happy. So this is the safety door.
8: I'm led inside the facility itself. It's a synchrotron, a machine that acts as a powerful microscope, generating intense beams of light, bright enough to reveal the detail of molecules in everything from cancer tissue to polluted dust. All modern economies have synchrotrons, but this is the first in the Middle East. A team in the control room gets ready. It took an enormous struggle over 20 years to get this far. Political tension, wars and a lack of funding all threatened the project at various stages. Iran might have pulled out when two of its scientists were killed and the Iranian government blamed the Israeli secret service. But the lure of having a stake in Sesame kept Iran in. Mahmoud Tabrizi is a professor of chemistry from Isfahan.
11: I think it is science, it is different from uh, politics. And scientists, they are doing their job. Science is like uh, water. It flows between the countries, but it never uh, runs out. So it is better to share uh, with each other.
0: Professor Mahmoud Tabricci ending that report by our science editor, David Shukman, reporting from Jordan. This is News <laughs> A reminder of our top story this hour, the uh, US President Donald Trump has defended what he called his absolute right to discuss sensitive material on terrorism and airline safety. At a meeting with Russia's foreign minister last week, the White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer told reporters that it was the leak from the talks which had been damaging.
5: When you go back and realise that three people who were in a very small meeting come out, the Secretary of State the National Security Advisor, and the Deputy National Security Advisor, and dispute the account. And yet, on the other hand, you have a bunch of anonymous sources using leaked information that is disputed at, at from a, what was actually briefed and not briefed. You have to question the intention of why that was done.
0: One other headline to give you, speaking alongside Mr Trump at the White House, President Erdogan has insisted that Turkey will never accept Washington's alliance with Kurdish fighters fighting in Syria. This is News Hour from the BBC with me, Tim Franks. We're spending a lot of time at the moment talking about Donald Trump. We're going to move backwards now to his predecessor, Barack Obama. For eight years it was he who was the most powerful man in the world. He who was one of the most publicly visible. But how much do we know of how he became the man, the politician, the leader that he was? A vast new biography, more than 1,400 pages long, aims to give us the complete picture. It's called Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama. Its author is the professor of law and history at Pittsburgh University, David Garrow.
2: The three years that Barack Obama spent in Chicago, 1985 to 1988, before law school, transformed him from a nice but forgettable guy into someone who, when he began Harvard Law School just three years later, struck everyone who met him as an undeniable star of the future. When Barack arrived in Chicago to begin work as a community organizer, he really didn't know where he was headed in life. Within the space of uh, less than two years, he became intensely committed to pursuing a career in electoral politics and believed he had a destiny that would take him to the White House. He articulated that privately but very explicitly to the two women with whom he was closest during those transformative years. And you also, correct me if I'm wrong, draw the conclusion that in his effort
0: to Reach that goal and define himself as a strong African-American politician, one of those women, he decided to end his relationship with.
2: Barack spent those three years in Chicago working for the first time in an African-American community. It was his initial immersion in black life, black culture. Prior to that time, Barack had grown up in Hawaii, lived briefly in Indonesia, had had a... a largely international set of of buddies uh, while attending college. But at the same time that his workaday life in Chicago is immersing him in African-American life, he's living very privately, very quietly, with a young graduate student who was half Dutch, half Japanese, a relationship that uh, endured from 1986 to 1991. But in black Chicago, everyone knew that in African-American politics, if a local black elected official had a white spouse, that was a ceiling. Uh, There was a well-known, very well-regarded black state senator, uh, Dick Newhouse, who had a white spouse. And it was coin of the realm in black Chicago that that meant that Senator Newhouse's political prospects were limited. As Barack grasped a much stronger black identity than he had ever previously had in life, he realized that to pursue a political future, he could not marry this woman whom he loved very deeply because she was not black. He nonetheless asked her to accompany him to Massachusetts, to Harvard for law school. She went and lived with him briefly, but she wanted a a professional academic career of her own. She didn't simply want to be someone's wife. Did you draw from this episode that this was Barack
0: Obama doing what a lot of people do when they're young, which is go through different phases, try out different identities, or is there something more
2: calculating, more driven about him? Working as a community organizer in black Chicago very quickly taught Barack that he'd have to go a different route in order to attain power. He articulated very explicitly to Sheila Yeager, the, the young woman he was living with at that time, and, and also to a, another very close friend, that he had come to believe he had a destiny. And that sense of political destiny indeed made him driven. He turned down a fully paid scholarship to Northwestern Law School, a a top 15 U.S. law school, in order to go to Harvard, where he incurred significant tens of thousands of dollars of debt. How far do you think what you have
0: discovered across your more than a thousand pages of, of this biography differs from his own accounts of how he came to be where he ended up.
2: In Barack's own memoir, Dreams from My Father, the self portrayal that Barack put forward is an attempt to make his younger life much blacker than in truth it was. He describes himself in dreams as a very angry, unhappy, uh, young man, calls himself a thug at one point. Now, I've spoken with hundreds and hundreds of people who knew Barack from his childhood, high school, in college, in his early work life. Not a single person endorses that self-description. So dreams from my father is is the creation of a myth that was aimed in significant part at presenting Barack as more deeply grounded in black culture rather than in a biracial identity. But do you think that what you have discovered changes the way in which
0: we should view his presidency?
2: Yes, very much so. Barack Obama as a politician in Illinois was a much more progressive figure than what we came to see as president. Barack, all throughout his time in Illinois, was a very outspoken critic of the intelligence community, the national security state, the U.S. Patriot Act, But once he was in the White House, Barack surprisingly turned out to be a champion of the CIA, of the intelligence community. I liked the Barack Obama of the 1980s and 1990s very, very much. And I think many of us who are progressive Democrats back in 2008 or early 2009 anticipated that Barack would be a more forceful more progressive president than he turned out to be. Now, uh, in Donald Trump's America, people are so upset that they they want to recall the Obama presidency more fondly than they actually did in years past. The reality of the presidency as it played out was, I think, widely understood to be underwhelming and, and disappointing. David Garrow,
0: Professor of Law and History at Pittsburgh University and the author of that enormous new biography of uh, Barack Obama, 1461 pages long, I think. Uh, Just to let you know that within the last few minutes, the Reuters News Agency has said that the US Defence Secretary Jim Mattis has said that he... Has no concerns about the Trump's uh, Trump administration's handling of classified information. He's had uh, chats with several US allies today. No, I'm not worried. Is the quote? That's it from News Hour.
3: News has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.